This morning, uh, I took a longer text. Really, I could break this down in probably multiple sermons uh, on each of the points that I want to talk about this morning, but I think when we talk about all of them together, we get a very holistic picture of what the resurrection of Jesus means. The first thing I want to talk about is that the resurrection of Jesus occurred in history. The second thing is that the resurrection of Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And the third is that the resurrection of Jesus changes lives. And Lord willing, that is where I'll spend the majority of our time. Uh, As I was telling uh, one of my former students, who's now a college student this morning, he said, make it a short one, I'm hungry. And I said, we'll see what happens. Uh... Looking at the text this morning, uh, the Gospel of Luke is an interesting one. In in our Bibles, we have four biographies is probably the best word of Jesus. We call them Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all kind of give their own understanding of the events that happened. Not that they disagree with one another, but simply that they emphasize different things. Luke begins his Gospel by saying uh, to the person he is writing it to, which is specifically one person who is financially supporting him, but also to anyone who was to read it. He said that he wrote it, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He sat down to write an orderly account using eyewitness testimony, even speaking to people who were still alive, in order to give an account so that those who believed in Jesus Christ, believed that he died for their sins, and believed that he was raised from the dead on the third day, those people would have certainty about the things they have been taught. Luke isn't primarily writing this book for skeptics, for non-believers, so we'll forgive him for not trying to give us an argument, but instead giving us a story just of how things happened. Now in Luke chapter 23, uh, Luke talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, and then he talks about the burial of Jesus. Jesus' body was taken and placed in a tomb. And it says that there are women who followed as they took the body to the tomb and saw where it was placed. And then they went back to prepare spices and ointments with the plan being that they would return and and use the ointments and the spices on the corpse, which they expected to be simply a body. So they leave, and it says that this is the end of chapter 23. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandments. See, they were Jewish women. In Jerusalem, having just witnessed the death of a Jewish man, Jesus, and they went and rested Friday evening to Saturday evening. If you know observant Jews today, you know they still do this. They practice the Sabbath. They rest from their work. So these women went and prepared the spices and the ointments, but then they rested, giving a whole day between the death of Jesus and Sunday morning. Then it says on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They had taken the spices in one of the other Gospels, Mark, it actually says that the women had, were concerned because when they got to the tomb, they knew there was a giant stone blocking the, the entry to the tomb, and they were not sure how they were going to move it. But then they get there. And to their surprise, remember, they're expecting to get there, struggle to get the stone moved, maybe ask for some help to get it moved, get into the tomb and expect to find a dead body. And instead, they arrive, and the stone is rolled away, And the tomb is is empty. Now you can imagine they weren't very excited about this. They're probably very confused. It tells us that they were perplexed about this. But then it says, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Later in this chapter, 
They're identified as angels, messengers of the Lord. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them. So they were frightened. They weren't excited about this. You know, we sang this morning, Christ the Lord is risen today, alleluia. We're all excited. They weren't excited yet. They weren't singing, oh, what a glorious morning. In fact, they were, they were saddened by what happened. They were scared. They were confused. And they arrive at this tomb, and now they have these vision of these angels speaking to them. And the angels say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. There's almost an accusation here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you coming to a graveyard to find a person who's alive? Yet, they didn't yet understand. He says, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Remember? As early in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 8, this is verse, or chapter 24, all the way back in chapter 8, Jesus is telling them, I am going to Jerusalem. I will, be, I will suffer and I will die and I will rise again. As late as Luke chapter 18, they're told this, and it says that they did not understand. They just didn't understand. It says the women remembered his words, and then they went from the tomb, and they went to the eleven. That's the twelve disciples you may have famously heard of, minus one, the one who betrayed Jesus. So it's the eleven and all the rest, and they go to them and they say, here's what happened. We went to Take the spices and the ointments, but there was no body there. It was empty. The stone had been rolled away, and we saw a vision of these men, and they told us that he is not here but has risen. And what does it say? It says, these words seem to them, that is the disciples and all the others, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Maybe this morning, when you hear about the resurrection, that is the coming back to life of a man 2,000 years ago in Jesus, you may think it's simply an idle tale, an old wives' tale, literally. You may be thinking, this is a story, this is a fairy tale, this is something I can't believe in. Dead people don't come back from the dead. Perhaps you are more like the disciples than you think, because that was their gut instinct too. Their instinct was, this can't be true. That doesn't make sense. These women must be mourning and grieving. They must be scared and shocked. Literally, that phrase for an idle tale refers to people who are sick and having visions and illusions because of their sickness. Uh, some of you may have been that sick before where you've had uh, some of those things. So they just don't believe them. Now, among the, the 11 and, and all the others, it says that Peter went and looked at the tomb. And he saw... It just as they had said, it was empty. Now, if Luke was making all of this up, if it really was just a fairy tale, or if it was a, a grift, a con, in order to convince people to, to give them money and prestige and whatever, then the story wouldn't seem to go like this at all. You think Luke would go back and rewrite a little bit of it. For instance, it would be very si silly in first century Palestine or first century anywhere to have the first witnesses to the resurrection be women. No offense to the women in the room. This was 2,000 years ago. Then a woman couldn't even testify in court as a witness. Now, you think if Luke was trying to compel and convince people, he might change this little detail. But he leaves it there. Because he's just reporting the facts as they were, not as we might want them to be. You think he might make up 
that they were men. He might make up that the first witness was Peter going to the tomb. He's the one who found the tomb empty. Peter was a well-known figure in the church. That would make a lot of sense. It would, it would give not only the fact that Peter was a man and could testify legally, but also it would give an air of authority to the whole thing. Yet he continues to persist that it was women. So the women were the first ones to testify to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that this event is important as a historical event. In 1 Corinthians 15, which uh, Cody already read from, although I'm going to read a slightly different part of it, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Paul is recording what he delivered to them as of first importance. Easter's not special because someone put it on a calendar or because a country recognizes it as a holiday. Easter is special because it's a resurrection day. Now, to be fair, if you come to this church week in and week out, you're going to hear about the resurrection more than just on this Sunday. I'll put that on, put that on the table. But in this day, we recognize, we set aside because it is of first importance that Christ was raised from the dead. And that he appeared to all these others. Now, if you're a skeptic in the room, Luke didn't write this gospel for you. That doesn't mean you won't get anything from it. He just didn't write it thinking that unbelievers were going to come and ask him a bunch of questions. So if you have questions about the resurrection, I'm not going to spend the majority of our time defending the evidence for the resurrection, although there is plenty of it. There are a lot of details that don't make sense unless you accept that Jesus actually raised from the dead. There's a lot of details that we have to reckon with. You know what? Almost all scholars, and I don't mean just Christians who work at seminaries. I'm talking about scholars who work in secular institutions, some of which are atheists, agnostic, maybe Muslim, or or whatever religion affiliation they have, who work as historians of antiquity, specifically the first century in the New Testament. Almost all of them agree that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a Roman cross. That's almost unanimous. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross. Not only do we have good historical evidence for it, but the scholars interpret that evidence as being true. Now, they're not saying that he died for our sins. They're simply saying that it happened. Any, any blog post you read about Jesus being a fairy tale that he never existed are foolishness. They really are. In fact, most of them come from a guy in the 19th century who made it all up. Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross. The second thing they all agree to, almost unanimous, almost at the same level, is that Jesus' disciples, that is his followers, believed they saw appearances of the risen Jesus. Now that's really important, the phrasing. Because it's not, they're not saying that Jesus' disciples claimed to see appearances of the risen Jesus. They actually agree that they believe That Jesus' disciples believed. Not only did they claim, but they believed it. They thought it was true. That's really important. 
Because liars, people who think it's false, don't tend to suffer and die for those things. They tend to give up at some point. And so scholars have agreed that it seems that there is a genuine change in the disciples where they believe this happened. And there's a number of other things that scholars would almost unanimously agree. And when you take all the facts together and you try to figure out the story that fits them most, and I don't have time to rehearse this whole thing, this whole thing. I, I don't want to give you a 30-minute lecture, and you don't want one either. And the truth is, if you're skeptical about this, I'd rather have a conversation with you so we're on equal footing. Up here, I get to be the guy who tells you everything. But if we have a conversation, then I have, I have a little bit of stake in, the, stake in it too. Because this Bible that I believe in says that if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, my faith is in vain. And so I'll, I'll take up that challenge with anyone because I want to believe the truth too. If you are skeptical about the truth of the resurrection, then come talk about it. Because here's what might happen. You might be compelled by the evidence and feel like you must believe. You must believe in God. You must believe Jesus was God. You must believe that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Or you may convince me I'm wrong, and then I have to change my career, my life, just about everything about myself, uh, which I'm willing to do. I'm young enough to do that. I'm young enough to have a career change. It's okay. I'll take that bet any time. I'll just come have a conversation with it, me. But when you do, don't bring me blog posts. Bring me an academic <coughs> book like that. This is one of the books I have in my office on the resurrection. This one's called The Resurrection of Jesus. It's by Michael Lacona. The subtitle is A New Histori Historiographical Approach, which is really good academic language for he's using the, the tools of secular history in order to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, he even writes in the introduction that he would not recommend a Christian put aside their faith in order to prove the resurrection, but he said that's exactly what he did for this project. Not that he stopped being a Christian, see, but that he wasn't going to let any bias keep him from searching out the truth. I'll pause there and say again, if you're a skeptic, have a conversation, don't take my word for it. But it's important that the resurrection of Jesus occurred in history. It is important. It's important because the Bible always speaks about the resurrection of Jesus not merely as a psychological resurrection or an emotional one or a mental one or even a spiritual one in which we're lifted to new place. It always talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was bodily, physically raised from the dead. That's the hope of Christians. It's not in some generic idea of salvific, spiritual renewal and resurrection it's a real event that occurred in history where Jesus, who was dead and in a tomb, walked out. That's what Christians claim to believe. And it's what we believe occurred in history. Such that all of humanity, all of our, our ideas about what history is, hinge on the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus occurred in history. If it did not occur in history, we are fools worthy of being mocked. If it did occur in history, everything changes on that fact. The second thing I want to point out from our text this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. So now we've had the, the women see the empty tomb. They've gone and told the disciples. Peter has gone and confirmed it. But now there are two disciples, not part of the eleven, but part of the larger group, who are walking from Jerusalem seven miles. Walking. That's how they traveled back then. They didn't have Kias, okay? They were walking to a village called Emmaus. And on their way, they were, have, they were talking about these things. 
People tend to talk about the things they're concerned about. And they were very concerned about all this stuff about the crucifixion and resurrection. Because they had gone from having no hope because their Messiah, their Christ, their one who was coming to save them was dead, which they did not expect, even though he told them multiple times. They did not expect it. And now these women had showed up saying that the tomb was empty. And all the explanations they could think of, the, the Romans moved the body, the Pharisees hid it, one of us stole it, didn't explain it, they couldn't explain it. The vision, they were confused. And all of a sudden, while they're walking and talking about these things, a man joins them, walking and talking with them. They don't recognize him. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But it was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus they had walked and talked with for years, but did not recognize now. And he asked them, what are you all talking about? They said, are you the only person visiting Jerusalem who hasn't heard about this Jesus of Nazareth? They say, he asked what these things are, and they say concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found just as the women had said. But him they did not see. They're telling him, man, you would not believe what's going on. It has been a wild, wild week. It started out, they didn't say this in the scripture, I'm just assuming. Started out on Sunday, we walked in and everybody was cheering us on. It was a lot of fun. Great, great day. We thought he was going to come and just take over the place. By Friday, he was hanging on a cross. By the end of that day, really that afternoon, he was dead. We thought he was going to come and redeem Israel and fix everything. But he died. They don't know what to do. Jesus responds to them. Still they don't know it's him. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is telling them, you really aren't picking up on it yet. I told you what was going to happen. You know the Bible, you know the scriptures, you know our Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament scriptures. You know this was supposed to happen, right? Was it not necessary that he should suffer and enter into his glory? And it says in verse 27, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's a historical event. It actually happened. But knowing and hearing that it happened isn't enough. So Jesus has to explain the meaning of it and the reason for it and put it in the context of a story, a true story. So that if you take your Bibles, the first 39 books at the beginning of your Bibles, what was called the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament now, these books, although they were written by different authors 
who lived in sometimes different places over the course of centuries, some parts of which aren't even written in the same language, yet Jesus points to them and says, all of them are telling one unified story that points to me. All these books, no matter their genre, whether they're poetry, whether they're singing, whether they're narrative, whether they're law, whether they're discourse, whatever they are, they're pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, and they are saying that he had to come and to suffer and then be raised from the dead. The event is one thing. If the event didn't happen, it's all in vain. But without the meaning, the story that this event is the climax of, we can't make sense of it. It is both an event that happened in history and the climax of a larger story of all God's work in this world. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps with the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he showed that in Genesis, there was a one born of a woman promised to come and crush the serpent's head, to crush the evil one's head, and it would bite his heel. A picture of a wounded victor. Or perhaps in Exodus, he pointed to the sacrificial lamb that protected the firstborn sons of Israel. Perhaps he pointed in Leviticus to the fact that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So the one who is coming must be a greater sacrifice sacrifice than anything else. And perhaps also not just the sacrifice, but the high priest who does it. Perhaps in Numbers, he pointed to the fact that he was the fire and the smoke, the presence of the Lord. Perhaps in Deuteronomy, he pointed to the fact that he himself is the law coming and fulfilling it. Perhaps in Joshua, he pointed out that he is the commander of the Lord's army. Perhaps in Judges, he said, he is the great judge and deliverer who will save Israel. Perhaps in Samuel, he said, he is the great king. In Kings, he is the great temple. Looking throughout the whole Bible and saying, you know, look at Isaiah. He is the suffering servant. And so on and so on and so on. Pointing out throughout Scripture how all these things, although they're different and disconnected and distinct, they are all connected in the person of Jesus such that all of these prophecies and all of these stories and all of these things pointing to the one who is to come were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Yet, after explaining this, they still didn't recognize him. They had been told by the women and the witnesses who had gone and checked the tomb that the resurrection had happened. The women had said it happened. The evidence they gave was verified by others. They knew the fact. And you know what? Jesus explained the whole story to them. Explained that everything was leading to this moment. And those two disciples walking down the road still didn't recognize him. I want to turn to Luke chapter 16 for just a moment. This is a parable Jesus told in this gospel account that I think is helpful because Jesus just explained that Moses and the prophets pointed to him. He just explained that the the event had had to happen and they had heard that it did indeed. In Luke chapter 16 verse 19, Jesus is giving a parable. You may have heard it before, you may not have. It's a, a parable, simply a story explaining a reality that's hard to comprehend on its own. And this is the parable that we commonly call of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's read. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You may not see the relevance just yet, but simply the story is of a rich man who ignored Lazarus, begging at his gate, and a poor man, Lazarus, both die. Some Jewish uh, 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 tradition said that when the righteous die, they would be with Abraham, and when the wicked die, they'd be in torment. And so the story goes that the rich man is able to see Lazarus with Abraham and says, I'm in anguish. Just allow him to dip his finger in the cool water because of this. Now here, and, and, and Abraham says, that's not going to happen. It can't happen. Now listen to this in verse 27. And he said, the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And this story, and now with the story on the road to Emmaus, Luke is telling us something clearly. The resurrection had to be an event that occurred in history. It was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, such that we don't even really understand them on their own without Jesus. We have to look through the lens of Jesus to understand them. We have to use him as the key to unlock their meaning. But that's simply not enough. They have Moses and the prophets. They can hear them. And he says, no, 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 send someone to be raised from the dead. Yet then he says, neither will they believe. If they do not believe because of the scriptures, they will not believe because someone was raised from the dead. Those two things are necessary, but they're insufficient. The disciples still walk on the road, knowing the resurrection is being reported, knowing that it explains the whole Bible, the whole Bible they had, all their Hebrew scriptures, it explains it all. Yet they still walked with Jesus and did not recognize him. Let me be extremely clear. You may attend church every single Easter and hear about the resurrection of Jesus Yet not see him. Yet not know him for who he is. You can attend your church your entire childhood and hear all the Bible stories and still not see who Jesus is. You can go to church. You can share all the right Facebook posts. 
You can say all the right things to your relatives, yet you may not know who Jesus is. And without knowing Jesus, the value of your knowledge, value of your experience, is worth nothing. Finally, what I want to focus on for the remainder of our time is that the resurrection of Jesus changes lives. Look Look here, now he's explained all these things, and they're near to the village. They're almost to Emmaus. These these disciples who've been walking for seven miles, and Jesus is with them. And it seems like he's going to keep going, and they say, no, 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 come stay with us. It's getting dark, it's getting late, come stay with us. We've been walking for a long time, just come rest with us. And so he stays. And it says in verse 30, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Perhaps they thought back to the the feeding of the thousands. When Jesus, through a miracle, broke bread and multiplied and fed everyone. Perhaps they thought back to Jesus' statement. I am the bread of life. Such that when we pray for daily bread, we pray for Christ himself. Perhaps they thought back to having heard about the night in which Jesus was betrayed, in which he had a supper with his disciples. And there he broke bread and said, This bread is my body, broken for you. In which he lifted up the wine or the the fruit of the vine and said, This is my blood which is shed for you. My blood of the new covenant. Either way, what they could not see in the testimony of the resurrection, what they could not see when the greatest Bible teacher that ever walked this earth explained the entirety of their Bibles to them, they were now able to see in the breaking of the bread, in the experience, the personal experience in which their eyes were opened to Jesus Christ. And it says, he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road. While he opened to us the scriptures. Looking back they could see. Looking back it made sense. Looking back they could see it was Jesus they were walking with. Looking back they could make sense of his teaching. Looking back they could understand the resurrection did happen. So they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. These two brothers who had walked seven miles away from Jerusalem. Because of what just happened said we're not sleeping tonight. We're going back. And they go back. And they found the eleven, it says. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You kind of feel sorry for the two disciples now. They had such a hard time figuring out who Jesus was. They finally they take that trip all the way back to Jerusalem. And when they enter the room, all the people in the room are already saying, Oh, he's risen! We know it now, he appeared to Simon! They're like, well... Okay, and and the women are in the corner kind of trying not to say, I told you so. And now they're saying, they're they're there, and they're saying, well, when we can get a word in edgewise, let, let us tell you what happened. Because we also saw the risen Christ. The resurrection of Jesus was surely an event that happened in history. It's, it's testified as such. And you know what? If you believe, if, you're, if you allow yourself to be open-minded long enough to believe that God could have created the world, it's not too surprising that he can do what he wants with it. And so it's not too surprising when a dead man can indeed walk when it's God who does it. 
It was surely the climax, the, the hinge, the, the end point, the goal, and the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the sure fulfillment of them. But even knowing those facts isn't enough. You can surely know the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and hear it preached, hear it argued to you, hear it explained to you, and yet not know him, not recognize him, not understand. Likewise, you can surely understand that the 39 books in the front of your Bibles all lead to Jesus. They're not something extra just tacked on. They were pointing to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, his resurrection isn't just something tacked on to his death, as if Jesus had to die and then because he was God couldn't stay dead. But that the resurrection was a part of the purpose of his dying. Because in dying for our sins, he had never sinned himself. He had never disobeyed God or rebelled against God, such that when he went to the cross, he was capable of taking on sin and defeating sin on the cross. But the penalty for sin is death. And so, because he never sinned but took on our sin, he was able to be raised from the dead, conquering death itself, so that now we do not fear sin because its slavery will end in Christ, and we do not fear death because it is only a temporary thing in which Christ will come and raise us all like he was raised. You can know all that and yet not recognize him. In the sequel to this book, Luke writes in Acts chapter 17, verses 32 through 34, for those of you taking notes, he writes this. Uh, let me pause and say Paul was, was actually preaching and explaining and arguing for the resurrection to a crowd in Athens. And here's what he says. Luke writes, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Oropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Do you all know what a traffic light is? If you live in Blount County, you might not. You know red light, yellow light, green light. If you live in Blount County, you definitely don't know what a yellow light is, right? Green light means go, yellow light means slow down, red light means stop, Okay. Actually, this isn't a part of the sermon. I was actually asked by the city of Alcoa to tell you all that this morning when we had a captive audience. When Paul preached the resurrection, it says that there were people who responded in different ways. The first way was this. Some of them said, red light, stop. Don't want to hear anymore. And whether just in their hearts or in their minds or out loud with their words, they mocked. The resurrection. How can you fools believe that? And maybe some of you are sitting in here having been dragged here by your mother or by your father or by your sister or your brother or your neighbor or whoever, your coworker, whoever it is. You just wanted to be polite. You didn't want to disappoint them. You showed up. But when you show up, you can't help but think in your own mind, this is a lot of foolishness, isn't it? You can hardly believe that people would willingly come one Sunday a year to hear about this stuff, let alone the fact that most of the people in this room come back every single week. Maybe every year you see all the Easter posts from your Christian friends on Facebook. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And you just kind of think, I'm really glad I'm not into these delusions. 
That's exactly how some of the men in Athens felt. Such that they heard the resurrection of the dead and they mocked and they didn't want to hear any more. They said, red light, stop. If that's you this morning, I, I don't know that I can persuade you. But what I'll simply say is this. I hope you realize that in rejecting the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, rejecting his death for your sin, you are agreeing, you are agreeing to pay the penalty for your sins for all of eternity. That you realize that every sin you commit, every, every act of disobedience against God, whether it's an action you do, a word you say, or a thought you have, that every sin, every act of disobedience against God, every rebellion of your sinful heart against God, every desire you have to flee from his presence and flee from his love will be awarded. It will be awarded in eternal separation from the love of God such that every one of those sins, because every one of those sins is an act against a holy and infinite God such that you can't bear that price on your own. And if you choose to bear that price you will never end paying it. It's a debt you cannot repay. Now, if you would say yellow light, slow down. I'm interested in what you're saying. I'm not convinced of it, but I'm not closed-minded either. And I would like to hear more about this. First, I want to give you a warning as well and then give you an encouragement. The warning is this. Yellow lights always become red lights. And if you die a yellow light, you will be a red light. You won't be a green one. Being neutral, being neutral on the resurrection is to continue to be in sin. Because all of us have been born as children of wrath and children of sin, such that without the intervention of God, without turning away from our sin and turning towards Jesus in faith, trusting him and his death for us and his resurrection, we're not neutral. We are opposed to God. We are in rebellion against God until we turn to him in faith. Such that being yellow light doesn't mean you're a moderate. It doesn't mean you're, you're clever. It doesn't mean you see all sides and you just don't want to commit. It means that you are, are a red light who could become green if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And the encouragement is this. Jesus said that everyone who asks will receive an answer. Everyone who seeks will find to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened, such that if you have an earnest heart to know the truth, you can pray. And if you don't yet believe in God, you can even say, God, if you are real, and you can pray for God to reveal the truth to you. If Jesus was truly the Lord, if he truly died for my sin, if he was truly raised from the dead, help me believe. And in praying that prayer and continuing to pray that prayer, not giving up on it just yet, you can earnestly seek and ask questions, have conversations, read this book, and try to earnestly seek and understand. I believe if you do that with an earnest heart, that is something that the Lord will receive. He says that the scripture says that he wants all to come to a saving knowledge of him. Such that I believe if you earnestly seek him in prayer and earnestly seek him in what you study and what you do, that you there's no reason God wouldn't answer that prayer. But I'll add this. If you walk out those doors and you immediately get on your phone to distract yourself, you immediately flip through 
Facebook or you go watch a YouTube video or you go home and you crash on the couch and watch TV, such that you distract yourselves from reckoning with the fact that death, death is inevitable and there's something we ought to do about it. That there is a problem of, in this world. We all accept that. You can walk in any place, in any part of this world, and ask people, is there a problem in this world? Is our world broken? I imagine they would all say yes. They may just have different answers of what that means. For us, we say that the world is broken because humans have made the free choice to rebel against God and sin, to disobey him. And the only way to reckon with that, the only way to deal with that, is through Jesus Christ. So if you are willing to hear more, if you're open-minded about these things, but you're not yet convinced, I would just encourage you, the the response I want you to have is, is to pray. The response I encourage you to have is to seek answers. And not only this, I would say, this may feel like really cheesy, but there's, there's those connect cards. One of them at the bottom says, I'm interested in learning more about the gospel. If you check that, I'm going to assume you're one of those people today that you haven't yet committed, but you want to hear more. Don't let yourself go be distracted in our extremely distracted world where you don't contemplate the most important things. Now, some of you might be a green light. Now, I, I imagine there's probably three types of people who are green lights who are ready. I, am, I get this. I'm all for it. There are those of you who are believers and attend this church most Sundays, okay? For all of you, how do we respond to the, the good news of the resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? We rejoice. We are going to sing in a moment, and we're going to sing loudly, and we're going to pray prayers of thanksgiving, and we are going to have our hearts conformed to the love and joy of God because our sins have been forgiven, and the result of our sin, which is death, has been defeated. That's how we're going to respond this morning. Now, the second group of people are probably people who are believers. They have faith in Jesus. They have true faith in Jesus, but they don't attend church. Or, or they don't have a community around them of fellow Christians. For you, I want to encourage you. I hope that you see that this place is a place that is worth coming to every Sunday. A place worth being a part of the family that is here. The last group are those who are unchurched, I assume, and, and non-believers. Up to this point, you have never made a profession of faith. And if you have made a profession of faith, you're not so confident it was genuine. To you, let's look at what the resurrection means for us. In Romans 10, 9, Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not a formula, it's a promise. It's a promise. It's a promise that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes lives and it can change your own spiritual condition such that if you confess and you believe, you will be saved. Those two things are quite important. Some of you have confessed before. Maybe you walked down an aisle as a child. Maybe you went to summer camp and prayed a prayer. You've confessed. You said, I believe Jesus is Savior. Maybe you even said, Lord. I believe he saved me. Some of you even said, I believe he should be in charge of me. He's Lord. He's God. He rules all things and he's going to rule me. Yet in your heart, you didn't truly believe. And you know that now because either you're not convinced of it now, you haven't been believing it for a while, or you know that now because it's been a while since you even cared about this stuff. 
Years have gone by, decades have gone by, and you could care less whether Jesus was raised from the dead. If that's you, you did not truly confess because you did not truly believe. It's important that your faith is not just a public profession, but it is a personal conviction, a change of heart, such that in your heart you believe not just that Jesus existed, not just that Jesus is Lord, not just that Jesus is your Savior, not just that Jesus is all those things, but also that he died for your sin and was raised from the dead, such that it's not just a confession, but it is a belief in your heart. You must have the personal part of faith in order. But some of you may very well have the personal part of faith in order. You believe you're a Christian, you feel it in your heart, you know Jesus is raised, yet you have never said out loud, never said to another person that you believe Jesus Christ is Lord. Without that confession, can you really truly believe if you're unwilling to put your reputation on the line for it, to put your relationships on the line for it? So this morning, if you are someone who who wants to hear more, perhaps you're Dionysius the Oropagite, Dionysius, an educated man, uh, an arguer in the Oropagus in Athens. No one expected this guy to come to faith in Jesus Christ, this poor Jew from Jerusalem who died on a cross but was also God. What's that all about? Yet he did. Or Damaris and the others. Don't let your education or lack thereof, your career or lack thereof, your family or lack thereof, your life or how you live it, put some barrier between you and believing and confessing. And this morning, I'm not going to put much more of a sales pitch on you at all. I don't think this is a sales pitch. I'm not going to put much more on you at all. Because if you know right now that you believe and you need to confess, then it's on you to do that. Jesus said that everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you know that you believe and you know you need to confess, don't let this day go by. Let this be the day of your salvation. Know that April 9th, 2023, Easter Sunday, can be the day of your salvation, such that you know it. Not a lot of people get to know it. You can write that down on your obituary. It can say your birth date and your death date, and the most important date is your born-again date when you die to your sin. That can be your day. Let us pray, and then we will respond in singing. We will respond in worship. If you need prayer, if you need to have a conversation, if you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, uh, we have a hospitality room behind the sanctuary. There will be an elder and his wife there who can speak with you and who can talk with you and who can pray with you. So I invite you to respond however you need to this morning. Let's pray.